Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of God. Thanks, Steve, for reading God's word to us. New Hope, what do you see when you look at Jesus? What do you see when you look at him? I don't mean when you, when you see those pictures, a fair-skinned man in a robe with flowing beautiful hair and a groomed beard. I don't mean all that artwork, as beautiful as it might be. I mean, what do you see when you look at the image of Jesus sketched out in the Bible? Because he's painted there for us in detail with words. The Bible doesn't say a whole much about what he looks like or does say a whole lot about what he is like, though. The Bible has a lot to say about what he did, what he said, who he claimed to be. And so I ask that question because... How you and I view Jesus matters more than anything. It matters more than the upcoming election. It matters more than the new school year that's upon us. It matters more than your career. It matters even more than keeping yourself virus-free. How you view Jesus will shape your experience of eternity. And it will dramatically affect your perspective on everything right now. It, how you view Jesus will shape the way you get through this week, through the rest of this year, and through the rest of your life. 
And John 19 invites us to look at Jesus. Right there in verse 5, this Roman politician, he points to him and says, Behold the man. So God willing, that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to do our best to see the man, Jesus, for who he really is. So please pray with me one more time. Lord Jesus, we've gathered here to behold you. Our church exists to behold you and to broadcast what we see in you. And Lord, we've already been beholding you in the songs that we've sung. We've, song about, we've sung about who you are and what you've done and what it means for us and what you will do when you return. We want to behold more of you. And so we ask you, we ask you, Father, show us Christ. And Spirit, we ask that you would guide us into all truth. And we ask this in the name of the Son. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 19. This passage that Steve just read to us is the passage we're going to walk through. And as we walk through this scene, we're going to gaze at Jesus and we're going to observe him. We're also going to observe what other people see in him and what other people think of him along the way. So to set all this up, it's Jerusalem. It's Friday morning, the week of Passover. Jesus just received a death sentence uh, from this council of Jewish priests and elders called the Sanhedrin. And that council could not execute him themselves. So they brought him to this Roman governor named Pilate to have him killed. So last week we saw the first part of the scene. Pilate, the governor, he already made it clear that he didn't want to execute Jesus. Look at chapter 18, verse 38. He says, it says, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. That is Jesus. He even offered to release Jesus to them. And they were not interested in that. And so, chapter 19, verse 1, that's what we're going to pick up. Let's read it again. Verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now, that's the second time he says that. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. It's the third time he says it. Pilate had Christ beaten or, or whipped. First century Romans, they had creative tools and methods for doing this, and some were worse than others. They were all bad, though. Depending on the crime, soldiers would tie a prisoner to a, a post and, and then beat him with rods in some cases, and in some cases with a leather strap. 
or for more serious crimes, they would use long whips. These whips that were frayed at the ends into these longer uh, uh, thongs that, that each one had, had metal fragments, pieces of lead or bone attached to the ends. You can imagine what kind of damage that would do. Flavius Josephus, he was a, a Jewish historian who lived in the first century, he, he explains that during a, a flogging or a, scour, a scourging, the ends of these whips, they, they would tear into the flesh with such force that after a while, he says, some victims had their bones exposed in their back. He even speaks of some having their innards exposed. Some died from being scourged. Now, it's possible that Jesus, on that Friday night, or on that Friday, it's possible that he received two scourgings. Because in Matthew and Mark, it talks about Pilate having him flogged after he sentences him to crucifixion. This is a scourging that's happening before he even sentences him to crucifixion. So it may be that this is just the first of two scourgings that day. Why does Pilate do this? That's what we need to ask. After all, he says he doesn't want to crucify him. Three times he says, I found no guilt in him. See, what Pilate's hoping for here is that he could punish Jesus and then let him go and be done with the whole thing and get on with his weekend. Apparently, he, he does allow these, these soldiers to, to mock Jesus, to, to dress him up like some kind of clown king with, with a purple robe, royal colors, with, with this crown that was made out of twisted thorns. And people have speculated about what, that, what those thorns were, where they were from. You can look at the types of plants that existed at that time in that place and, and make some, some guesses. But ultimately, we don't know for sure. What we do know is they were thorns, and we know that they hurt. And then after they put that, thorn, that, that crown of thorns on his head, they pretended to honor him. It's the ultimate dishonor. Maybe bowing down before him while they chuckled and then stood up and smacked them, punched him. And all this, all this was, on Pilate's part, an attempt to satisfy the Sanhedrin. He wants to, to, to do enough to quiet them down so that they'll go home happy that Jesus was punished sufficiently. In fact, when he points to Jesus and says, here he, he says, says, behold, the man... It could be that what he was saying there is, is, look at him. Are you satisfied? Are we good here? Is this enough? They were not satisfied. They, they beheld him there, and they wanted him dead. You know, without realizing, Pilate is actually saying more here than he knew he was saying when he says, behold the man. And, and John, I want us to see this. John, the, the author of this gospel, he's showing us something here that we cannot miss. That phrase, behold the man, it points us all the way back to someone else who is called the man. We know him as Adam or Adam, which means the man. That man When we find him at first, he's in a 
in a garden, an idyllic environment. He's not surrounded by threatening, hostile men and women. No, he's surrounded by peace. He's surrounded with the comfortable, glorious creation that his God gave him as a gift to enjoy and to subdue. And you know who else is there with Adam? There's Eve, the woman, and God himself is there with them. Adam experienced that first man. He experienced perfect communion with God. And he also received the law from God. And he failed to keep that law. When that man, the man Adam, was tempted, he broke God's law. And as a result, a curse was placed by God upon him and all who would descend from him and on the earth itself. Genesis 3.19, God says to Adam, because of what you've done, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, you will die. And like I said, that curse not only affected him, but it affected all who descended from him, and it also affected the whole earth. Because verses 17 and 18 of Genesis 3 says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Then verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And that's not the only place where God speaks about thorns as this, this symbol, this sign of the curse. An environment that once was comfortable and safe now becomes dangerous, harmful. And now here's Jesus facing death with that symbol of the curse on his head under the curse. And all that it represents, he carried it. He felt it. In fact, at the cross, and that's where he's headed here, at the cross, he will feel the full weight of that curse absorbed in his body. Galatians 3.13 tells us why. Paul, the apostle, says there, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, Jesus is the man. He's the second Adam. He's the better Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the last Adam. He was the man who was given God's law. He was given a mission, but he did not fail. And his success meant the curse would be lifted. It meant victory over sin and evil for, every, for him and for everyone who believes in him. The curse is lifted. Now, now we're going to see more about who Jesus is here as we look through the other things that Jesus is called in this passage. He's not just called the man here. He's called other things. But, but, but just for a moment, I want to pause and I want us to get just two little quick takeaways from this. First of all, if you are experiencing pain, if you're experiencing sorrow, if there is one person who can identify with you in your pain and your loneliness or your sorrow, or your loss, it's this man. He felt the sting of the curse more deeply than any of us ever will. He felt all the injustice, all the temptation. The temptation to sin 
the temptation to despair and hopelessness that you might feel. He felt that temptation. And so Hebrews 4 says, he sympathizes with us. Isaiah 53 prophesies of him and says, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was, listen, despised. If you have been despised, no one knows how you feel more than this man. We esteemed him not. Surely, Isaiah says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yes, it's true that when Jesus went to the cross, he carried our sins and paid the penalty for those sins. But he also carried and he felt the weight of our sorrow, of our grief. If anyone knows what you are experiencing or have experienced, it's him. If no one else understands the trauma that you've experienced, here's the man that does and cares and is willing to walk with you through not only the pain, but healing from that pain. That's the man. That's the man. But also, I think there's a, a takeaway here for those of us who are men, males, those of you who are here and online. We've got an, uh, an, an archetype here. The, the standard, the model for what manhood looks like. He's the archetype and standard for all of humanity, of course, and so I can make this application to all of us, really, but I want us to think specifically about how he is the standard, the model for men. He walks out obedience to God. In the face of hostility, he entrusts himself to God, who judges justly. Rather than lash out in violence, rather than... To, than, than, than Strive for vengeance. He entrusts himself to the Father. What else does he do? He speaks truth with courage. He lays down his life for other people. And what's driving this archetypal man? Ultimately, it's not personal ambition. It's what drives a lot of guys. It's not a desire to exert power or to get control or to prove anything to anyone. Some of us are driven by that. We just want to prove ourselves. No, no, no. He's driven by a loving obedience to the Father and love for people, even his enemies. So as you look at, the, at this image of Jesus, see his, his self-restraint. See the meekness. See the, the, the self-giving. The other-centeredness. You know why I can say he's other-centered? There's no doubt that there was pain, there was grief. Don't think of Jesus in this moment as some kind of stoic, non-feeling man who's just able to kind of hover over all of it. No, there must have been groaning. There must have been tears. There must have been moaning under the pain. But at the same time, there's this other-centeredness because he stays in the middle of it all for the people he loves. So regardless of what our culture rewards or what our culture tells us about manhood, here's the real thing. Here's the man. So how do you see Jesus? 
First of all, he is the man. He's the better Adam, and he's the perfect man. But what else do we see about him in the scene? Look at verse 7. It says there, the Jews answered him, that is, answered Pilate. Pilate says, take him and crucify him yourself. They say, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. That sentence is really interesting. That phrase is really interesting. It means he was already afraid. Now he's even more afraid. You see, that council had already leveled other accusations at Jesus. But now they're saying, here's the problem. They're, trying, they're throwing accusations at him to see what sticks. And, and here's what they say now. He's made himself, he's made him equal to the, the Son of God. He's called himself the Son of God. And this scares Pilate because he's already worried that, that, that the Jews are going to stir up trouble for him. That this council is going to, to somehow undermine his authority. But now he's even more scared because he's worried that he might be messing with the son of a deity of some sort here. Who exactly is he in the room with? He's worried that the man he may, he's being called to crucify, may in fact be the son of God. And so look at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? It's an interesting question. Where in the world did you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. Where are you from? Pilate says. Jesus has already told Pilate, we saw this last week, that his kingdom is not of this world, it's not from this world. And now the way that he answers Pilate here, it, it's hinting at the fact that Jesus is from above. That's what Pilate was afraid of. You see, what Pilate was afraid of and what the Jews refused to believe was in fact the truth. This man was the son of God. It's why he could bear the curse and live. It's why he could face death and defeat it. Only the creator who placed the curse on creation could free humanity and the earth from that curse by absorbing it. Only the creator could do it. And this is him. One of my favorite Christmas carols. We only sing it at Christmas, but maybe we should sing it other times of the year. Hark the herald angels sing. It, it goes this way. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God with us. And the God who would die for us. The only one who was able to absorb the wrath of God is God. And he did it for us, for all who would believe in him throughout history. That's love. So again, who do you see when you look at Jesus? 
John shows us he's the man, he's eternal God. But there's one more thing here. So let's look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You see what they're saying? Forget about the Son of God stuff. This man opposes Caesar. He's saying he's king. And if you don't kill him, guess what, Pilate? You must agree with him. You're making yourself an enemy of Caesar, too. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, which would be about noon. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So who is this Jesus? Yeah, he's the man. Yes, he is the son of God and he is the king. And this is the aspect of his, of his identity that we really focused on last week. He's the king. And I was thinking about this over the week, that as Americans, we, we might have trouble with that image of a king. Because what's our frame of reference? Like real kings. The last king we had was King George III. And I didn't learn a whole lot about King George III in school. Maybe you know a a whole lot about him. I didn't learn that much. I did learn some things about him recently because I watched Hamilton with my family. And you Hamilton fans, if all you're going to go by is that musical, then King George was pompous, rather small, small small-minded, I mean. So petty, he gets really irritated and, and kind of sad when his subjects reject him, reject his love. It's a poor example of what a king is if we're trying to understand this king in John 19. It sounds a little bit more like Pilate than it does like Jesus, actually. But actually, we have some better examples of kings in, in, in popular culture. And it's no... It's no Uh, it's not a uh, coincidence that we do. For those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, Lord of the Ring fans, you've got Aragorn, the king. You've got Aslan, the king. For those of you who happen to like the Chronicles of Narnia, those are great examples of kings. They're they're warrior kings. They're Christ-like kings. You've got Mufasa the king. You've got my personal favorite right now is King T'Challa of Wakanda. It, and the reason I like him is because he is, he is the rightful heir to the throne. He, he actually loves and serves his people. He's defeated, at least apparently defeated. He apparently killed, but he comes back. And what does he come back saying? As you can see, I am not dead. And he reclaims what's his. And he sets all things right. I like that king. But you know that all of these kings, every image of a king that we can find in our popular culture, they all point in some way to a better king. And that better king is this man, the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the promised hero warrior that we all long for, whether we realize it or not. It's why we love these stories. It's why when King T'Challa comes walking out of that rubble 
And he says, as you can see, I am not dead. I don't know about you, but I got goosebumps. Why? It's not just entertaining. No, because, because there's something in us that awaits, that has long awaited a warrior king, a leader who will self-sacrificially serve and whom no one can defeat, not even death. This king, he's the long-awaited seed of David. He's the one that the prophets wrote about. He's the one that the Psalms point ahead to. He's a servant king who rules and he judges with righteousness. And he does die for his people. And then he walks out of the tomb victorious. Who would not want a king like this? If this is what you mean by king, I want that kind of king. Look at verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. They rejected him and aligned themselves with a lesser ruler. Tiberius Caesar, he's our only king. And then Pilate, he obliged them because he feared and he wanted the approval of that other king, Tiberius Caesar. And that decision, it probably looked pretty reasonable to his peers. This is reasonable behavior. He's acting like a politician. He's acting like an earthly ruler. What does he do? First of all, he's scared to, to his core about everything that's going on here. But he walks out to speak to the Sanhedrin and to the crowd that the Sanhedrin had gathered. And he walks out there. He doesn't show fear. No, he walks out there with some swagger and he says, shall I crucify your king? As if he himself isn't shaking in fear of what's about to happen. But he sacrifices Jesus. Why not? His career might depend on it. But the irony is, the irony here is that Tiberius Caesar would be dead in less than five years. And Pilate would lose his job in less than five years. And all while the king that they all rejected, he still lives. And he sits on his throne. And he will judge both of those men and all of humanity. See, this king, he is returning to reclaim what's his and to set all things right. I often use that phrase, to set all things right. It's one of my favorite phrases when I think about the return of Christ. It means what? It means that when Jesus returns, everything will be made as it ought to be. There will be no more death. Same with sadness and mourning, all gone. Every tear will be wiped away. The curse will be finally and forever lifted. Isaiah 42.4 says, He, the king, when he returns, this servant king, this suffering servant king, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, the whole earth. Now, that's a, that's a double-edged prophecy. 
Because on the one hand, it's a promise that all will be well. But it also means judgment. There's no justice without just judgment. So that everyone who has done evil and has not, has not believed in the one who's able to rescue them from the curse will be banished from the presence of the king. So that everyone who has not bowed to him as the son and as king will be banished from the very presence of God. That doesn't mean that have nothing to do with God anymore. He'll continue to be king. But for those who have not believed in Christ and have been separated from the presence of God eternally in hell, you'll be taken away from the presence of God's goodness, his care, his loving kindness, and instead will experience the presence of his wrath of his just punishment. He's returning. And so there's there's an urgency to Pilate's words here. When he says, behold your king, we need to hear that. And when he says, behold this man, there's an urgency for us to hear that and think, who is this man? How do I see him? Will I believe that he is in fact the man, the son of God, the king? Pilate didn't see any of those things, at least not the way he needed to see them. He missed it. Jesus was in the room with him and he missed it. How could that be? He was blind to it somehow. And we can talk about spiritual blindness and the fact that God needs to lift that spiritual blindness. But I want to look at this from another angle, from the human angle. How did Pilate miss who Jesus was? I think there's some things that got in the way of Pilate's vision. For one, he was pretty ambitious. History tells us that he was an up-and-comer, or at least he was trying to be an up-and-comer. He had worked... And he had worked strategically and even married strategically to get this job of governor in the region of Judea. He wanted to hold that position. He wanted to move up. And so the last thing he needed was a council of religious leaders undermining him. The last thing he needed, he had already he had, already had some complaints issued to Caesar or to Herod, I should say, no, to Caesar, by some of the Jewish officials. They had already complained to Caesar about him before. He didn't need any more complaints. And so what made sense for his career was to not see who Jesus is. He assumed that would be best for his life. Ambition got in the way. He was also fearful. You see, fear got in the way here too. He was afraid of being considered disloyal to Caesar. His job security, like I said, was already under threat. He was ambitious. He was fearful. He was also self-deceived. In the very way that Tim described for us a couple of weeks ago. You know, I don't think it's any coincidence that John tells us 
Pilate says three times, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Like Peter, he convinces himself, that's the script and I'm sticking to it. I find no guilt and yet I'm willing to continue to flog him, interrogate him unjustly, crucify him. There's a double-mindedness, a self-deception. He's convincing himself that even though he knows the man is innocent, he's convincing himself, I think this is the best way to go. What's that? It's not self-deception. You know, Matthew tells us that when Pilate is there on, on the judgment seat with Jesus, his wife sends word to him. And his wife says to Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Stephen Pilate's wife was saying, don't mess with this man. No, walk away. It's not worth it. More than your career is at stake here. But because of his ambition, his fearfulness, his self-deception, he proceeded to offer up Christ to be crucified. What's the takeaway for us? Maybe it's simple. Our ambitions and our fears can keep us from seeing Jesus for who he is. Our ambitions, on the one hand, and also our fears. Because we can start to see Jesus as an obstacle to what we want, as a distraction from what we're trying to get place we're trying to achieve, the money we're trying to save, the house we're trying to buy, the things we're trying to get, the future we're trying to establish for our kids, the future we want our kids to achieve, all of that, all of that ambition and the fear that what's not going to work out the way we want, all of that obsession can keep us from seeing Jesus from who he really is. He becomes a threat to us even when we start to realize that siding with Jesus can actually make me lose opportunities for advancement. It can even mean losing my status. It can mean losing some respect. And so we can self-deceive. We see the evidence that we should be beholding Jesus. We should be submitting to Jesus. We should be following him. We see that. We see the evidence, but we tell ourselves, no, right now, I've got to head in this direction. I've got to give my time to this. These ambitions, whatever they might be. You don't even have to be ambitious or power hungry to miss Jesus. All you have to do is be distracted. There's so much happening right now in, in, in our lives that can distract our gaze away from him. It's so easy right now to look around and panic and stop looking at Jesus, right? Now like Peter walking on the water, he looks away. It's so easy to look away from him right now. I've got two kinds of people, two categories broadly in mind right now that I'm, that I'm thinking of and I'm speaking to. One, there are those who have never acknowledged Jesus as king, as a son of God, who have never beheld him in that way and are allowing maybe ambition or fear or self-deception to keep them from doing that. But also have in mind those who have believed in him, who have looked at him and said, he is the son of God, he is the king. He is the man, and I will be baptized in his name, and I will follow him. You've said those words, you believe those words, and yet you find yourself distracted from him. You're not beholding him. You're beholding other things. 
God has us in a season right now where our plans and our ambitions are getting blown up. Many of them are. We, we are all coming face to face with the fact that our, we don't have much power or control. And our ambitions, the things we desire are not guaranteed us. We are all, like we said last week, facing uncertainty, unprecedented circumstances, and lingering threats to our well-being. It's become a cliche, but that's true. We're all facing that. What better time than now to behold Jesus, to gaze, to focus undistractedly at him? Do you see him? Are you beholding him? And if you're beholding him, who do you see him to be? Who is he to you? Do you see him to be the man, son of God, the man, the perfect man, the second Adam, the son of God, the king? Yeah, he's the better Adam. He's the better David, the better sacrifice, the better high priest, the better judge. What do you see him to be? Whatever you see him to be requires a response. Whatever you see him to be requires a response. You can't look at him and just walk away. You can't. You can't just look at him and say, seems like a good man. You can't even just look at him and say, clearly he was a great man. Tim Keller often makes the point. It's always stuck with me. He says, we're either going to love him or we're going to want him dead. That's what Keller says. Seems kind of extreme, right? Can I be somewhere in the middle? I don't really love him, but I don't want him dead either. Come on, somewhere in the middle. He says, no, you end up on one of those two sides. You see, the crowd, they clearly wanted him dead. Take him away. Pilate was ambivalent. He didn't really care either way. He didn't particularly want Jesus dead. He just didn't want him to be his king, and he kind of wanted him out of the way. But that equated, in the end, wanting him dead rejecting him, take him away, crucify him. You see, even when we take the posture of, yeah, I guess Jesus is fine. I know some people in my family even, I know some people really, really love him. He demands a response of either love and honor and submission as king or it's rejection. So don't settle for the kind of ambivalence that, that Pilate walks out here. Don't settle for that kind of ambivalence. It did not end well for him. If you've seen him for who he is, if you've already seen him for who he is, you, first of all, we need to decide who is he for me? Who is he? Who do I see him to be? And if you've already seen him to be the son of God, the king, the second Adam, then you need to keep looking at him. Keep looking at him because it's so easy to lose sight of him, isn't it? It's so easy to lose sight. His presence in your life, in my life, it can become kind of theoretical, distant, irrelevant, like he's kind of there. We sing some songs on Sundays to him. He's, I don't see the relevance. Out of sight, out of mind is how the saying goes, right? Out of sight, out of mind. The more we are not beholding Jesus, the more we will not be thinking about Jesus, the more he will be out of our thoughts. What I mean is that the more that we're not focusing our thoughts on Jesus intently, in his word, in prayer, in worship, in meditation, the less that we're doing that, the less all of our other thoughts are going to be shaped and influenced by Jesus, his power, his character, his words. Instead, our thoughts, our actions, our words, the way that we navigate 
these unprecedented circumstances right now will be shaped by whatever we're beholding. And some of us are beholding a lot of stuff. Even you're stuck at home, there's so much to behold. Ubiquitous screens everywhere. And we keep gazing. And what are we gazing at? What we're gazing at, it, it entertains us, uh, it informs us, it, it infuriates us. In some cases, what we're gazing at it scares us. You will not know what to do with what you're seeing if you're not beholding Jesus. So church, let's behold him again and again. Let's pray. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Oh, Spirit, help us to gaze upon the Lord. And would you even do more than that, Lord? As we gaze, would you transform us into the image of that man? Amen.